The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock, And my Redeemer, this is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Thanks, Sally-Ann, for reading that. And uh, can I just say a big thank you to um, Lucia and all those who helped um, with the the breakfast uh, today. It It was great. So thank you for doing that, stepping in and saving me from... Having to cook bacon butties on me, eh? Um, we are um, in a short series at the moment, second of today, the second stage, um, looking at one of our core values, which is the, the Bible. And it, it's in here, it's on the, the back, we've got prayer, uh, Bible and relationships. And we're concentrating the next few weeks on the Bible. And uh, we're going to be using in small groups this book, Hearing God's word is, is most, most people, a lot of people doing, if you're not in a small group, come and join a small group, it would be great. And you'll be studying this little booklet for most of the groups, and um, in it is Psalm 19. So you can follow up today's um, sermon uh, from Psalm 19 in there, hearing God's word. And the question I want to, to ask today is how do we hear from God? How do we hear from God? Um, we are, last week, if you were here, we thought um, in the morning and uh, in the evening about Jesus and how Jesus viewed God's um, word. Today, we're thinking about how do we hear from 
God. Let's just take a moment, shall we, to pause and to, to pray. How do we hear from God? Hebrews 4 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. For the word of God is living and active. Father, thank you uh, for this word in front of us. Help us to not take it lightly. Help us to come under it, to know that it is living and active. May we know that tonight. Uh, We pray that you will speak to us and that we'll go away ready to live it out. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got uh, three um, brief points. It's always three, isn't it? Sometimes I'll catch us out and we'll have ten. Um, do have your Bibles open at, at Psalm 19. The first thing, um, point one, that <clears throat> the limitation, the limitation of nature. The limitation of nature. Why do I say this? Now, verses one to six of the psalm tell us about the heavens. Okay? Uh, the sun, the heavens, that's how they understood it. The heavens were up there, the sun, the moon, the stars. It's the natural world um, we're thinking about. And it revealed um, the glory of God, verse 1. And so there's a sense that every person that's ever lived is getting, whether they believe it or not, information about God um, from the world around them. But this has massive limit, uh, uh, limitations for us, hence the title of this point, The Limitation of Nature. Of course, this passage is often used to talk about science and nature. We're not going to talk so much about science and nature and that interaction, but that's a good uh, place to look at um, for this psalm as well. But I want to concentrate on uh, how nature tells you about God, yet it is not enough. It has a limitation. You need real words to understand God. Now, why is this? Now, this is really, this is quite a tricky psalm because there's a really p- bad translation. I don't like to say this very often because it sort of says, well, is, are there lots of bad translations? I want you to know there are not lots of bad translations. But look with me at verse 2. Verse 2 says, Day after day, that's the heavens, they, the, the heavens, pour forth speech. But if you look down at the footnote for verse 3, I think the footnote is a much better translation. In fact, if you look at lots of the modern translations, you'll find that the verse... The footnote is the actual way that they translate this. Lots of scholars get uptight about this verse because it seems like a paradox. That's because it is a paradox. Um, So it actually says, if you look at the the footnote, they have, verse 3, they have no speech, they are not words, no sound is heard from them, talking about nature and about creation. 
And then it goes back in verse 4 to say their voice goes out into all heavens. Do you see there's a paradox here? Um, Nature speaks, but they are not words. And I think it's deliberately so. Um, In other words, David is pointing out that information coming in all the time about God from nature, day after day, but it's non-verbal communication. We talk about non-verbal communication all the time, don't we, these days? Um, And we know how that can be mistaken, don't we? Um, We know that we can get information across without words. Nature is like that. But great limitations with that. Think about it like this for a moment, an illustration. If you're out in the woods and um, you want someone to follow you, say for example, you want them to follow you, you would normally leave a message, wouldn't you? Something like, I'm five miles east of here, follow the road straight, and then take the first left, keep on the path and you will find me. And the best way to communicate that is you get a pen and paper out, isn't it? And you write it down. You use real words. Yeah? Straightforward. You pin it to the tree and the person, the friend, finds it. And then you find them uh, following the instructions. What if you can't leave a note? No pen, no paper. You might leave five stones in a line uh, and then a broken branch that goes left. You might do that. And from that, you might infer what the message is. You might infer it. I hope this is not a parable for the the pilgrimage coming up. But you see the problem, don't you? You see the problem. From that, they might surmise it's five days, five hours, not necessarily five miles. They might say it's the fifth road on the left, not the first. Maybe it means this, maybe it means that. It's so easy to misinterpret that kind of communication. And it's the same with nature. You see, without the Bible, you can have information about God coming in all the time. You can be intuitive about it. You can be imaginative about it but you can make big mistakes about it. And that's what people do. They finish up maybe even worshipping nature. Loads of people around the world, and like us, go out. They look at the stars and the moon and the heavens, and they they pour forth speech. But we cannot understand the message. We don't actually know what it's saying. Why? Because there's no voice. There's no words. Verse 3 in the footnotes. Okay, there's no words. As great and as beautiful, as wonderful as nature is, and I like to go out in nature as, as like uh, most of us, it cannot give you what your heart desires. What it longs for above all. It can uh, give you a sense of the glory of God when you go out, don't you, up a mountain and you go, wow, isn't that amazing? Where does it all come from? How did it get there? But it cannot give you what you really need. And that's, of course, that then leads us to the clarity of the word. That's why you need the clarity of God's um, words, which is the next section from verses 7 to 10. 
Now, in verse 1, you see uh, the word for God there. The heavens declare the glory of God. See that in verse 1? That's the Hebrew word Elohim, which is the general uh, word for God. But if you look with me at verse 7 and onwards, you will see the special name for God used. It's Lord. You see that in capitals? It changes at that point in verse 7 and onwards. And it's, uh, we sometimes translate it, the impossible to translate, but yet we try to translate it as Yahweh. And it's the personal name for God. The name that was revealed to Moses, remember the burning bush and all that, I am who I am. That episode, God entering in into a personal covenant relationship with Moses. So you see what's happening here in the psalm. If you want to know God, who creates space and time and heaven and all that, if you want to know him intimately and know that he loves you, you have to find that in his word, in his law. That's his word, where he speaks to us of his love for the world. Now, thinking about the love of God is often a place where people get themselves um, find hard about when it comes to Christianity and the Bible, particularly because they will say, I, I don't need the Bible to tell me that God is love. I know God is love. I don't need the Bible to tell me that. Uh, in fact, I find the Bible quite hard because it talks also about God. Um, there's lots of judgment in it. There's lots of rules and regulations. And, and I don't believe God is like that, even though I believe he's like this. Let's think um, for a moment about that. Sometimes how people reject the rest of the Bible, but they want to accept God is love. How do, we, how do we get the belief? Think for a moment. How do we actually get the belief that God is love? Well, where, does that, where does that come from? Have you ever thought about where it actually comes from, the idea of God being love? Where does that concept come from? Did we get it from nature? Do we get it from nature by looking at nature? With all its volcanoes and hurricanes and floods and tsunamis and forest fires and avalanches and tornadoes? Or do we get it from looking at the natural selection process? The circle of life that we talk about and hear about as lions rip the heads off antelopes and, and wildebeest. Or when the female tarantula eats the male tarantula after mating. Is that where we get the idea? I'm being, you can laugh. <laughs> you, you see, if you really go out into nature to look for God of love, you will not find it. You'll find it quite difficult. Nature is a difficult place. Nature is red in tooth and claw. So we don't turn and say God is love from nature. Well, what else? Do we look at history and surmise that God of love comes from our history? Um, I'm actually trying to start reading. It's quite hard. Salinsky's um, book, the, the Gulag Archipelago, sound, makes me sound really like I read lots of heavy books. But, but 
I've only read the Ford and the, the, the back so far. But it's very interesting because it's all about the camps and prisons and um, all, all the secret police of Stalinist Soviet Union. I mean, you, just, you even just need to read the cover in the back and you'll find that it is full of despair, suffering, death and evil. I don't think you need to say any more, do we? We don't get the idea of God being love from history either. It's not from nature. We don't find it in history in that sense. Does it come from other religions? It's a thought, isn't it? The God of love in, in other religions, is it there? And the answer is no. It's not there. In Islam, God is an absolute one, all-powerful, all-knowing. He's above all things and cannot be comprehended. He's rather out there. Islam never says that God is love, ever. And don't let anyone tell you that it is. What about in Buddhism? Well, that's a bit different, isn't it? Because the concept of God, is, creator God, is, is rather a different um, sense in Buddhism. It's a concept. It's, they do have gods, but they're often mundane, um, inert, or distant. No mention of them either being of love. Where in the world does the idea of God being love come from? It's not from nature, it's not from history, it's not from other religions. You don't find it there. No, the idea of a loving God came through the world, through the Bible. Came through God's word. It's kind of ironic that the idea of God is love comes through the Bible, and yet many people who uh, believe that now want to reject the Bible. We need to be consistent, don't we? Let's not pick and choose the bits and the ideas that we feel are most compatible. The Word of God tells us that God is love. And it's that which is going to restore the soul. Verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. How do we need... We need this, don't we? Now let's take a moment to think about the soul... The soul, for a moment, is um, sometimes we so compartmentalise the mind, the body, the soul, um, uh, the heart. Well, actually, in biblical understanding, we're really all we're one thing. It's just the concept of saying who we are, our being, our whole being, our wholeness. It's all about those things. And David is saying there's something wrong with who we are, a soul, mind, body, heart that needs restoring desperately. And looking at the heavens, looking at the skies, the nature may cause us to infer that there is a glorious God out there, but that does not revive the soul. Has anyone had that feeling of actually being so insignificant when you look at nature and you're at the top of a mountain you just feel kind of sometimes a bit crushed by it I know that feeling you think gosh it's a bit overwhelming the only thing that can restore your soul is a just transcendent God who reveals himself and that I can have that personal relationship with him the only place you'll find that is in the scriptures Look with me at um, uh, verse 7b. The, the statues, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making 
um, wise, the simple. Eight, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant. The ordinances of the Lord are sure. They're more precious than gold. They're sweeter than honey, honey from the comb. David is talking about the law, commands and ordinances, the word he delights in them. When was the last time you delighted in the law and the word of God in this kind of way? A challenge, isn't it? It's quite, you know, David is really delighting in it. Sweeter than the honey. When you pick up this, this book, um, you know, we, we read them and say, I can respect them, but love them and delight in them and get joy from them. Hang on a minute, David. Surely you're going a bit too far here. I can see the wisdom in the law, but delight in them is something different. How is it possible? For David to say this, how does the law revive the soul in this sense? Why is it not just crushing him? Um, when you look at the law, it, it, its first use of the, the law is to hold up a mirror to us, isn't it? And shine back to us and to say that we, we've got lots of faults and lots of blemishes, that we can't keep this law. And you realize you can never live up to it. Does that make you delight in it? So why does David say it restores the soul? It's really important. And that's why we need this verse 14, really. It's the crux of it all. It's so easy to miss. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're the rock. And you're the redeemer. You're the one that saved me. You're the one I take refuge in as a rock. Because they tell, these words tell us that God is a redeeming God. He's our rock, salvation and refuge. The word pleasing here is sometimes translated as acceptable. And it's sort of, sometimes we can miss that, what that meaning, acceptable, sacrifice. Um, you know, it's, it comes from the sacrifice, the sacrificial system. That ought to trigger something in us and start thinking, sacrifice. All through the law, it tells us that people are to bring perfect sacrifices. Only a perfect one will be acceptable. David knows, like all of us, that he's not perfect, that he falls short. Just read Psalm 51. Read Psalm 51 about his own failures. So how can he ask that his words and meditations may be acceptable, an acceptable sacrifice. Lastly and briefly, that's why we need the living word. It's the only way to understand this is through the living word. If you go to Luke 24, you go to the end of Luke 24, and you don't need to do it now, but if you look at that, after Jesus has appeared to the disciples, following the resurrection uh, from the dead, he says this. He says, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me, he says. Everything is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Everything in the Psalms is about Jesus Christ. 
Everything is being fulfilled in the Psalms in Jesus Christ. It's really very important as we read Scripture, as we read the Old Testament, that we read it through the lens of Jesus Christ. In another Psalm, in Psalm 40, it says, I desire to do your will. Your law is within my heart. I desire to do your will. Your law is within my heart. That psalm in Hebrews, in the New Testament, is quoted by the writer. And he's talking about Jesus as the one who delights and desires to do God's will. You see, Jesus was a man who delighted in keeping God's law. At the end of his life, he deserved to be embraced by God. Uh, He deserved blessing and praise. But that's not what happened, is it? He was forsaken on the cross. He was beaten and abandoned by everyone, including his heavenly father. And why did he do that? Because he was offering the one perfect sacrifice for sin. Our sin, yours and my sin on the cross. As Galatians 3.10 says, no one can be made right by the law. No one can be made right by the law, but Christ redeemed us. Redeemed us. It's a word, isn't it, from verse 14. Redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. David couldn't give God a perfect sacrifice that was acceptable. He couldn't. He's like you and me. We, we fail. We mess up. David couldn't give that absolute sacrifice. But David's greater, greater great, great, great son could, who delighted in the law perfectly, who desired to do it fully, who is the spotless lamb of God without blemish, who offered a perfect sacrifice in our place. And when you come to verse 14, meditate on that as you read it. Think about it. Allow it to speak to your heart. Delight in it. To know that Jesus is your perfect sacrifice. And he restores your soul. See, if you know that, and you let that to affect your heart, you will no longer be afraid of the law. Because it delights God just because he's already done it through Christ. And you just delight in it instead. Not trying to fulfill it in the sense of trying to keep it. Because you can't. But knowing that Christ has kept it already. How do we know this? How do we learn from this? Well, if nature is all there is, we're hopelessly lost. That cannot revive the soul. Only the word of God revealing the living word of God can do that. That's how we can know the infinite, transcendent, covenantal God who wants a relationship with you and me tonight. That he loves you and he will love you forever And he will keep on loving you forever. The way you and I find out about this good news is through hearing the word. Hearing his statutes, hearing his precepts, hearing his commands, his ordinances of the Lord. That there is a one, there is the one who has redeemed us, who is our rock, our refuge, Jesus Christ. Shall we pray?
the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They're more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. God our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is more precious than gold and it is sweeter than honey, than pure honey from the comb. Father, would we know that your son Jesus Christ fulfills your word, fulfills the law. We thank you for Jesus and we pray that we will have our hearts transformed by your word, that it may restore our soul now and forever. Amen.